This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist John Crace on Boris Johnson's delusions reaching new heights. Comedian Hannah Gadsby unpicks the myths and personal struggles surrounding autism spectrum disorder. Columnist Eva Wiseman chats to comedian and activist Joe Lysett on comedy, consumer activism and queer communities. And finally, we hear from regular column Experience, where one woman let a baby bird nest in her hair for 84 days. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, with the government taking a Wild West approach to law-breaking, Labour chose to focus instead on media mogul and oligarch son Yevgeny Lebedev's peerage. And whilst most Tory backbenchers realise defending the indefensible is a step too far, even for them, the law of a possible peerage of their own, John Crace observes, remains a draw for at least one or two still gunning for the oligarchs. This piece is read by Jason Dunn. The denial was near total. You'd have thought that Boris Johnson would have had plenty of time to prepare a response to the Metropolitan Police's decision to issue the first bang-to-rights 20 fixed penalty notices. After all, they can hardly have come as a surprise. Only it seems that everything is a surprise to the suspect, or the criminal as we may soon have to call him these days. So much so that he's still not sure if he actually went to a party during lockdown, even though the police have concluded that loads of people did. Even now he's swearing blind that no one did anything wrong in number 10. The police must have made a mistake. If it wasn't already before, it really is now one rule for him and another for the rest of us. Imagine the scale of the delusion It had been a lovely sunny day, and Party Marty, a.k.a. Martin Reynolds, had suggested that the Downing Street staff get a bit pissed together in the garden after work, just to cheer everyone up a bit. 
and to thank them all for their hard work, and he had even been sure to ask everyone to bring their own booze, because he had been thoughtful enough to remember that the suspect was quite mean and didn't want to have to pay for people to get trashed. Party Marty had even sent around an email confirming all the details. But for some reason, Boris had not only failed to read the email, he had totally forgotten there had been a party arranged for that evening. So when he had wandered outside with Carrie, he'd been totally baffled to discover the garden of number 10 full of people, along with trestle tables weighed down with food and drink. Obviously, he had been too polite to ask what everyone was doing there, so he just went along with it, as you do. And it goes without saying that it had also completely slipped the suspect's mind that he had introduced legislation preventing people socialising and that parties were illegal. Now it gets positively spooky, because the same thing kept happening time and time again, and each time the Prime Minister forgot about the pandemic. There were at least 12 parties in Downing Street. Johnson attended at least six of them, and the suspect was somehow convinced that no parties had ever taken place. And, bizarrely, still is. Despite the police having now concluded the first stage of the investigations and found the law had repeatedly been broken at number 10, Boris is still adamant that he had only ever attended work events. It was totally normal for staff to get roaring drunk, break the toddler's swing and toss the empties into the flower bed at pandemic planning meetings. What happened in number 10 stayed in number 10. And that also went for the fixed penalty notices. Anyone who got fined would not be obliged to resign or even admit they had broken the law. This was government as the Wild West. No wonder then that Labour have become ever more inclined not to take the Prime Minister at his word. If the police don't feel they can trust him, why should anyone else? Either the suspect is a lying narcissistic sociopath who has no idea of the boundaries between right or wrong, or he's out of his head on psychotropic drugs and is living in a parallel hallucinatory universe. Or both, possibly. So Angela Rayner turned an Opposition Day debate into a humble address to force the government into releasing information about the appointment of Yegevny Lebedev to the Lords just to make sure there was no wrongdoing. You could sense that Rayner would rather have been letting rip about the FPNs and Johnson having lied to Parliament than debating Lebedev. But the Commons had been warned not to stray off-topic, even to join the dots about the Prime Minister's lack of judgement. So Labour's deputy leader stuck to her brief. Her request was simple. The Guardian and Sunday Times reported that the intelligence services had originally recommended Lebedev as unsuitable for a peerage. Indeed, the head of MI6 had even refused to have lunch with the oligarch. So Rayner just wanted to check whether their concerns were genuine, and the suspect 
had doctored their recommendations in forcing the Lord's Appointments Committee to change its mind. Or whether Johnson was just shallow, venal and corrupt, and wanted to reward someone who invited him to flash parties. The lengths he might have gone to drop his security detail after the NATO meeting to get trashed in Lebedev's castle in Italy, and gave him good coverage in the Evening Standard. As for Lebedev, was he in hock to Putin, like his dad? Or was he just a spoilt airhead? As so often, it fell to Paymaster General Michael Ellis to defend the indefensible in the Commons. Fortunately, Ellis has no sense of self-worth and will say almost anything to advance his own career. Though this time he was almost on his own, as many of the rest of the Tory backbenchers had decided, after the Owen Pattison lobbying fiasco, that it wasn't a good look to be seen trying to cover up possible wrongdoing, and had said that they would vote with Labour. If there was dirt on Lebedeff, then so be it. And if there wasn't, then there was no harm in making the details of his appointment public. Weirdly, there are some Tories who feel the probity of the Prime Minister still matters. Ellis tried to make the case that even the suspect had given up on. There was nothing remotely abnormal about Lebedev becoming a peer, he said, sotto voce. If the Prime Minister's brother and Zach Goldsmith could become lords, then anyone could. Perhaps one day, even Ellis himself might reach such heights. He could dream. Lebedev had just been your everyday billionaire who'd taken pity on a down-on-his-luck London mayor and backed him through thick and thin. The intelligence services were just guilty of Russophobia in turning him down. It didn't help that Lebedev was busy tweeting that it was an outrage the Commons was debating his peerage. You can take the boy out of the Kremlin, but you can't take the Kremlin out of the boy. Only two Tory MPs bothered to speak up for Ellis, and for the rest of the debate he cut a lone figure, just waiting for the moment his own party chose not to vote with him at the division. Like so much of his life, his contribution had been entirely pointless. Though Ellis wasn't the only one to stick up for the suspect's inherent honesty and magnificence. Over on the BBC, Matt Hancock, whose skin-crawling neediness is in a league of its own, was saying that he didn't care if Boris had lied or broken the rules. Johnson was the right person to be leading the country regardless. Just is a job. Or a peerage. Lord Lovenest. That was Prime Suspect PM Takes Partygate Delusion to Hallucinatory New Levels by John Crace. Read by Jason Dunn. Next, after almost two decades and at the cusp of retirement, comedian and consummate storyteller Hannah Gadsby shot to fame in 2017 with her show Nanette. Two Netflix specials followed, but it is only in the last three years that she has been able to put a name to her lifelong struggles behind the scenes. Here she talks about what it means to navigate a neurotypical world with an atypical mind. This piece is written and read by Hannah Gadsby. 
You don't have to be an expert to know that people with autism don't get to speak about their own experiences. Until very recently, autism has largely only been understood through the prism of the experience of parents and as a list of observations that mostly neurotypical medical professionals have made and assigned meaning to. The myths around ASD and ADHD have wasted enough of my life, so I don't really want to waste any more of my time thinking about them, much less writing them down. For a long time, I worried that I'd been misdiagnosed. It was difficult for me to believe that I wasn't entirely to blame for my life being such a painful struggle because I was so used to assuming that I was a bad person. It took me a long time to get brave enough to simply share my diagnosis. My experience did not match the popular understanding of autism, and I knew I had to become an expert in neurobiology in order to untangle the myriad of myths surrounding autism, just to beg permission to claim that piece of my identity. I was right to be cautious, because when I finally did start telling the world of my diagnosis, the dismissals came thick and fast. I was told I was too fat to be autistic. I was told I was too social to be autistic. I was told that I was too empathetic to be autistic. I was told I was too female to be autistic. I was told I wasn't autistic enough to be autistic. Nobody who refused me my diagnosis ever considered how painful it might have been for me, and it got real boring, real fast. Ever since I can remember, my thoughts have been plagued with a sense that I was a little out of whack as if belonging was beyond me. To give this feeling a story, it's as if I am an alien who has been abandoned on earth and left to muddle my way through life without a reason, a mission, or any memory of home. If you are a conspiracy theorist, this is where you might begin to wonder if I might perhaps be a lizard. I am not. Now piss off. I am a visual thinker. I see my thoughts, but I don't have a photographic memory, nor is my head a static gallery of sensibly collected thoughts that my brain curates into easy sense. It is not linear. It is fluid and flexible, kind of like a private Wikipedia that I'm constantly revising and editing, but instead of words, everything is written in my own ever-evolving language of hieroglyphic films filled with hyperlinks to associated and often irrelevant thoughts. I've never managed to develop a reliable system to file and separate my thoughts into individual think pieces, and so I am utterly incapable of having one thought without at least another hundred coming along for the ride. Further complicating this issue is the fact that my brain doesn't work in the realm of the abstract. I'm not capable of thinking with imagery that I haven't seen with my own eyes, which means when someone tells me a story, I will see it as something like a film that I must edit together out of all the other films sourced from my own internalised collection. Every single day I have spent on this earth, I have added countless images to my brain library. Needless to say, it is 
very busy in my head. If it were possible for someone to catch a glimpse of my thoughts being processed, they'd be hard-pressed to make sense out of it. I doubt they'd even believe that the tornado orgy of wingdings and gifts was anything other than gibberish. Sadly, the enthusiasm that my brain brings to the collecting of visual records is not then applied to the filing and retrieval process. And because of my inability to quickly and efficiently translate what I see into an externally communicable format, I am wired to have lots of fun and adventure in my head, while at the same time failing totally, utterly and miserably at life on the outside and feeling profoundly alone. I believe that it is this whirl inside my brain that contributes to my inability to speak at times. To be clear, I don't identify as being non-verbal, but I often lose my verbal ability, especially if I'm overwhelmed by a lot of sensory information at the same time as I am trying to identify, process and regulate emotional distress. This is what is called selective mutism, which is a common comorbidity of ASD, but not exclusive to it. When I told mum that I was autistic, she said, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always knew that there was a lot going on inside you, but I just couldn't get in. You were like a tin of baked beans and my tin opener wouldn't work on you. It's a tidy metaphor, especially if you know that mum does not like baked beans. My childhood was a serendipitously effective buffer for the worst that my ASD threw at me. Small town, not a lot of change, my family unit was a ready-made social network that I didn't have to navigate cold because I was just a part of it. They looked out for me, but because we were a big family, no one really noticed if I didn't talk. I was the youngest, so no one expected me to be a leader. No one noticed when I would disappear for hours, and no one thought much of my habit of taking frequent naps in the linen press. I wasn't quirky, I was just Hannah. Nobody thought I was special when I memorised every single question and answer in Trivial Pursuit, because I wasn't special. Everyone cheated one way or another. It was only when I stepped out of the bubble of my family that things went to shit. And oh gosh, to shit it went. For as long as I can remember, I have struggled to grasp even the most basic of life skills. In my first year of primary school, I forgot to wear underpants so many times that my family started to check me at the door every morning before I left. I assumed I'd get better at stuff as I got older, but it only got worse, and the older I got, the less amused people were by me. Footnote, I am wearing underpants today. During my adolescence, I began to find it more and more difficult to make myself understood. And that is when I developed an instinctual fault responsibility whenever I didn't understand what was going on around me, which, to be clear, was all the fucking time. This struggle persuaded me to assume that I was unlikable, and eventually I stopped thinking about the world through the lens of my own needs, and anybody who is a human knows that this is not a recipe for good times. I used to fret about fitting in at school, not because I wanted to, but because I knew I was supposed to. 
I was at my happiest in my own company, which I took to be an abnormality. It never occurred to me that it could be the epitome of normal behaviour for me. I was a girl, and girls were expected to be masters of the mingle, so I tried really hard to be a normal girl, but it was a fool's errand, because my neurobiological situation makes it hard for me to see all the networks of undercurrent connections that drive the interactions of the more typical thinkers which in turn makes it incredibly difficult for me to intuitively reflect peer group behaviours. So the best I could do and continue to do is observe, guesstimate and imitate, which is often referred to as masking in autistic circles. As a coping mechanism for teenage me, masking was an incredibly successful tactic. I was only bullied intermittently during my school years. But as a catalyst for growth, It worked more like castration. By the time I was middling my 30s, I was no longer living my life. I was merely coping with it, and barely. I felt as if I was a supreme annoyance and a burden to anybody I spent meaningful time with. But nobody seemed to notice that I had major depressive episodes every other year and debilitating anxiety the rest of the time. Not even me. Nobody noticed that I never made eye contact. Nobody noticed that I often spoke in a patchwork of collected phrases. It took me a long time to even spot those patterns of my own behaviour because I was too busy trying not to do the wrong thing by guessing, pretending, panicking, then either shutting or melting down. My meltdowns had always been a mystery to me, So when I was finally diagnosed, I was able to reframe the way I thought about my strange little outbursts. For a start, I became far more compassionate toward myself, which probably halved the distress of the occasions. In the scheme of my life, I have not had very many meltdowns, however. I'm more of a shutdown kind of autistic. From the outside, a shutdown looks very similar to a sulky tantrum, but it is nothing of the sort. I don't have control for a start, and I'm certainly not ruminating on any kind of emotional narrative because I have gone into fight or flight. But in my body, that translates into neither fight nor flight. I just shut down like a maxed-out power grid in the middle of a storm. Meltdowns are equally distressing, but for different reasons. The worst is knowing that I am out of control and may accidentally injure myself, or worse, someone else. Meltdowns are often conflated with panic attacks, but they are not the same beast. The biggest difference between them is that a panic attack is agitation and fear spinning on a kind of mind loop, whereas a meltdown is a maelstrom that begins in the body. Another important difference is that a panic attack will never resolve the anxieties that triggered it. Meltdowns, on the other hand, are a real spring clean. They clear the pipes and can often leave you feeling as if your body has been reset. I wish more than anything that I had known about my ASD when I was a kid, just so I could have learned how to look after my own distress instead of assuming my pain was normal and deserved. There is no one to blame but I still grieve for the quality of life I lost because I didn't have this key piece to my human puzzle. But until someone unlocks the riddle of time travel, 
Little me will have to flail and fail their way through the world for 30-odd years. I see a fault in the idea, put forward by neurotypical experts, that autistic people have mind blindness, which essentially suggests that we are unable to understand the inner workings of other people. I believe we all have mind blindness. Why else would we invent language? The problem is that communication skills are developed atypically in autistic people and, most often, very slowly. I have always had difficulty articulating my needs, but as I've gotten older, my language and social skills have improved a great deal. My ability to regulate, however, has not, nor have my sensory sensitivities. My eternal struggle with these distresses often gives the impression to others that I am moody, reactive and inconsistent. I say I want one thing, then moments later I will say that I need the opposite. This is not a reflection of my character, but rather it is a reflection of my neurobiological functioning. I am unable to intuitively understand what I am feeling, and I can often take a much longer time to process the effects of external circumstances than neurotypical thinkers. But it is they who get impatient with me, and under that pressure I feel forced to guess my needs before I've had time to process stuff in my own way, and so mistakes are made. I can be cold and not know it. I can be hungry and not know it. I can need to go to the bathroom and not know it. I can be sad and not know it. I can feel distressed and not know it. I can be unsafe and not know it. You know how when you put your hand under running water and for a brief moment you don't know if it is hot or cold? That is every minute of my life. Being perpetually potentially unsafe is a great recipe for anxiety. And, spoiler alert, anxiety is bad. Once I understood that I was always going to have difficulty with self-regulation, I stopped worrying about it. Once I'm distressed, my moods are not mine to control, but my environment is. I'm always working to remove myself from all the cycles and patterns of hostile environments, like cafes that have polished concrete floors. And I no longer search my behaviours exclusively for revelations about my character. I use my occasions of distress as ways to map the circumstances and environments I move through and look for ways I can reduce my exposure to distressing situations. I have learned how to advocate for my own experiences instead of being ashamed of my pain and confusion. I stopped worrying about what I was expected to do and worked on building an understanding of what I could do to make myself feel safe and calm. I'm not afraid of pressing pause during a television show when I feel distressed. I seek out spoiler alerts to avoid getting panicked by unexpected plot twists. I leave crowded spaces. I switch off discordant music. I wear headphones at restaurants. I openly express my hatred of the saxophone and electric guitar solos. I don't allow important emotional conversations to take place in cafes with polished concrete floors. I spend hours alone at home, rearranging my little piles of bric-a-brac because it's really fun. I only wear blue clothes because blue makes me feel calm. I listen to the same music, watch the same shows and eat the same foods 
over and over again without any qualms. I find joy in my life where I once couldn't because I was too busy trying to do the right thing instead of checking in with my own needs first. I am lucky. I have the privilege to be able to protect myself now. But it's not because I can do it on my own. I need help. There is not much about my life that is not looked after by another human, sometimes teams of them. That is the beauty of success in show business. Other people become quite keen to do all the things for you. I'm basically a middle-class white man from the 1950s. But even if I hadn't stumbled into success, I would still need a lot of help just to navigate life. It is absolute bullshit that the only way I could access the help I needed was by accidentally activating some kind of exceptional potential I didn't even know I had until I was nearly 30 years old. Please stop expecting people with autism to be exceptional. It is a basic human right to have average abilities. Many people who struggle to find stable employment also contend with things like intergenerational poverty and or trauma, cycles of abuse, mental illness, systemic discrimination, disability or neurological disorders. Not only are these all chronically stressful and traumatic circumstances, they have all been linked to a high incidence of impaired executive function. Welfare systems are not built to be easy for people who are anxious about using the phone or people who mix up dates. They're not designed for people who are bad at keeping time, filling out forms, or people who can't easily access all the relevant bank, residential and employment details from the past five years, if they thought to keep that information at all. Welfare systems don't accommodate for transients because welfare systems are not built to be accessible. They are built to be temples of administrative doom because, apparently, welfare is a treasure that must be protected. Can somebody please do something about that? I'm not good enough at organising to be an actual activist, but searching for the connections between the big picture and the little picture, however, is a very ASD thing to do. I'm never not cross-referencing the trees with the forests, and it can be a very exhausting way to engage, but I wouldn't change it for the world, because I believe communities need thinkers like me. That was Hannah Gadsby on her autism diagnosis. I've always been plagued by a sense that I was a little out of whack. Written and read by Hannah Gadsby. We'll be back after this short break. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, he tweets Boris Johnson after PMQs as if he's his best girlfriend. And he channels his anger into jolly but subversive stunts, which have led to him becoming a national treasure in waiting. Joe Lysett is the go-to guy for getting up corporate noses. And Eva Wiseman finds during her interview with him, there's nothing he likes more than breaking a few rules to get to the truth. Read by Jason Dunn. One Monday in March 2020, Joe Lysett got a call inviting him to go on live TV to explain why he'd recently changed his name by deed poll to Hugo Boss. Long story short, he'd done it to challenge the brand's heavy-handed use of cease-and-desist letters, and it was a typically Lysettian stunt, Robin Hooding the rich with humour and a small amount of rage. It was one of his rare days off when he wasn't filming a Channel 4 show or on a stand-up tour, which meant that when he got the call, Lysett was doing his unofficial weekend job, caring for a friend who was dying of bowel cancer. I said, they want me on the Victoria Derbyshire programme in an hour. And he was sat next to me in bed, like, well, off you go then. He loved it. All the carnage I create. So his friend would have loved what happened two years later. I go for a swim with my mum once a week, he says, taking a delicate swig of coffee. And she normally takes a bit longer to come out. So while I was waiting, I posted a made-up Sue Gray report on Twitter. I found the cabinet office logo and put it together as a little image on my phone. It was the end of January 2022 and Partygate was raging. Which was why it wasn't a huge surprise when he got a message from someone who works in Parliament to say it had been read as a serious leak, that MPs were visibly panicking. Among the findings on Lysett's document were the revelation that one of Johnson's staff was referred to as Twatterall Flow, and they played a game called Pass the Arsehole. He tells me the story with glee, in full and considered paragraphs, holding eye contact. One of the things I both loved and hated about my friend was that he'd always stay at a party after everyone else had gone, whereas I love going home. So when he was told he had days to live, He defied all of it and just kept going. Until, of course, he didn't. The day after Lysett's Sue Gray report made headlines, he tweeted again. I write comedy sometimes as a way of anger, he began. He was angry, he said, because his friend had died in lockdown. 
and I wasn't there because I was following the rules. And we had a tiny insufficient funeral because we were following the rules. And I drove his kids away from that funeral back to Birmingham without any sort of wake because we were following the rules. And it felt unnatural and cruel and almost silly. But we did it because we followed the rules. He ended quietly. You might wonder how it feels to have been described in the papers as having caused these people chaos and mayhem and mass panic because of a few jokes. Let me be clear. It feels absolutely fucking fantastic. It was one of those moments when a flag was stuck in the wet sand of the pandemic, an anger perfectly articulated that resonated first across the internet and then across the country. He only wishes his friend could have seen it. He would have been thrilled at the chaos. I'm very proud of what I wrote, he says, and it feels like a good use for my comedy. Because yes, while Joe Lysett is very keen to make people laugh, he also wants his work to have an impact, and he does this largely by being lovely. There's another comic he adores, quite an anti-like figure, really smiley, and then she calls you a cunt, <laughs> and you love it. I think that sort of thing is quite powerful. You can get away with so much when you're nice. He chuckles delightfully. Recently he made a documentary about greenwashing, pointing out that the $900 million Shell claims to spend on renewables is dwarfed by the $17.8 billion of their total investments. When he visited the Shell headquarters to confront them, our director found it so fascinating. Having worked on lots of other films where people are in your face, with a banner maybe, he saw that security didn't really know how to deal with someone who's not being aggressive, who's just being very lovely, telling them you like their jacket. It's disarming and so I run with that as much as possible. Along with the Hugo Boss stunt, three series of his consumer watchdog show, Joe Lysett's Got Your Back, have seen him challenge Uber Eats' hygiene policies by creating a takeaway located in an old skip and flash mob a bank into refunding a defrauded customer. Rather than trying to fix the world, Lysett attempts to massage its smaller bureaucratic aches. Got Your Back, he offers, is a show that celebrates the paper cuts of life. The Lyset I meet today is gently but noticeably different from the Lyset on TV. Similarly charming, joyfully charismatic, but more masculine, he suggests. After lockdown, I watched some of my old videos and I just didn't recognise myself at all. Who is this person that's flailing about, being camp and ridiculous? It felt like another life that only exists on stage and drunk in gay clubs. Before I started performing, I was always very irritating and obnoxious at dinner parties. Comedy is a good outlet for that. I can get the praise that I clearly need from that section of my life. And then the rest of the time I sort of enjoy being a bloke with a cat, doing my gardening. On Instagram, he has a fabulous sideline in gardening content much of which involves labelling his camellias variations on slag. 
He is insistent that he's not a political comedian. I'm not. You are, I say. I'm not. You are. Am I? He uses his shows as a sharpened tickling stick, embarrassing corporations into behaving better. He speaks vividly and regularly online about LGBTQ rights. Though less obviously political, the matter-of-fact way he discusses his own mental health is striking. For the last year of his friend's life, he couldn't eat or drink, and later Lysett realised it was this association that led him to getting panic attacks, where he was convinced he was going to be sick. And so I started to sort of close myself off from the world, which was obviously the wrong thing to do, because what I've since discovered through therapy is to overcome those things, you have to do tons of it and see that you're okay. He grimaces. I had an outbreak just before going on live TV. I thought I was going to be sick on the rain, which actually would have been amazing. Ten minutes of stand-up writing itself. He tweets Boris Johnson after PMQs as if he's his best girlfriend, and he channels his anger into jolly but subversive stunts, which have led him to becoming a national treasure in waiting. I do worry. There's genocide happening all over the shop, and I'm worried about somebody who's been attacked in a gay village in Birmingham. Is my anger proportional here? But I suppose I'm cross because it's my community. And at the moment, I can see how the same mistakes and judgments are being made that I've seen before. I feel like we're going backwards, and so that does make me cross. In what way? Trans rights, for instance. The way trans people are talked about in the British media is completely different to America. It's really important to talk about. I thrive and I exist and have rights because people before me fought for them. It's my duty to do the same for the trans and non-binary community. I'm not a woman, so I can't comment on what it is to be a woman. But I know it's not right to treat people inhumanely. When he talks about anger, sometimes it seems more like fear or grief. Stonewall, like any organisation of that size, will have made mistakes. But if you lose it, there's nothing like it. You won't see it again. And some people's lives depend on it. It feels like the attack on Stonewall is emblematic of the attack on LGBT rights at large. He's bisexual. Which means, he joked to an audience, you're all at risk. How much does his queerness inform his work? I think if I wasn't queer, I'd probably be working at... He hums. Ernst and Young. Doing some sort of mid-to-top-tier accountant role. Probably pulling in around 100k. I'd have a very nice wife. Two children, one with learning difficulties, but nothing that will hinder them too much. He looks a little wistful. Subconsciously, very early on, I knew I was not going to thrive in a corporate environment. The way I speak, let alone dress, was not encouraged. And so it's not even really about sexuality. It's about identity. It's not about who you're fucking. It's about what you want to say. And my very existence was always sort of questionable. I think the anger that I sometimes feel towards institutions 
is probably pent-up anger from that time. The institutions that turn you into the men that work for these institutions only serve the ones that conform, and anyone who can't do that is left behind. A few years ago, a particularly nasty school bully served him in a Tesco Express and told him how funny he was on TV. Lysett didn't quite know what to do, so he said thank you brightly. On a signet ring Lysett wears on his left hand is the dialing code for Birmingham, his home and, arguably, his muse. He was born there in 1988, and after a decade of touring the country's comedy clubs and going viral after an 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown appearance, in which he recounted a battle with York Council over a parking ticket, apart from popping down to London to film The Great British Sewing Bee, or, for instance, Iceland to film Travelman, Birmingham is where he stayed. In 2019, after buying a house in King's Heath, he invited the Birmingham Lord Mayor, Yvonne Mosquito, to officially open his kitchen extension. It's just a quietly creative and brilliant place. And it's not showing off about being brilliant, it's just getting on with it. His new show is built around a stunt he's been working on for three years, which began when he realised he'd paid too much for his house, but ended up as a love letter to my local community. It's the thing I've made that I'm most proud of. Why? Because at its core, the show's not about me, it's about my neighbour's goodwill. The stunt includes aliases, drag queens, estate agents and phone calls from the police. And it's kind of amazing doing the previews and watching audiences as they realise what's happening. It's beautiful to see them go, wow, people, people are good. We all needed that. A reminder that out of something as silly as me trying to get my house price up, this incredibly empowering event can happen. The new show is called More, 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 How Do You Lice It, How Do You Lice It? With previous stand-up shows titled I'm About to Lose Control and I Think Joe Lice It and That's the Way Aha Aha Joe Lice It which correctly suggest audiences dancing into the theatres and him cheered before he's even tried to bring down the government or told an impish story about his visit to the post office. He brings up a specific comic strip. The first square is a comic on a podcast, quietly and seriously explaining the importance of comedy as an art form, as a political tool. And the second is the same comic on stage, shouting about all the pussy he gets. I know comedy isn't high art. It's basically just men shouting shit into rooms of drunk people, he says, twinkling. But I do love it. That was I'd Never Have Made It in the Corporate World. Joe Lysett on comedy, consumer activism and queer communities. Read by Jason Dunn. Finally, when Hannah Bourne Taylor moved to Ghana with her husband, she found herself isolated and lacking purpose. Then a chance encounter with the fledgling bird led to a journey of growth that would change her forever. Read by Serena Mantegi. In 2013, my husband, Robin, took a new job in Ghana. We relocated from London, 
where I worked as a photographer and copywriter, to the capital, Accra. We then moved to the grasslands, where guinea grass swayed 11 feet tall. Home was a thatched bungalow beside the Volta River. I had loved nature since childhood, when my dad taught me about birds and animals. I photographed horses professionally and considered the outdoors the place where I felt most alive. So when we arrived on the plains, I felt relief. Robin worked, but my visa didn't permit me to, and I was left isolated, homesick and lacking purpose. With few people around our home, I turned to nature. I learned the routines of local birds, the weavers that flew from kapok trees, trailing fronds like streamers, and the pair of violet turacos that went to roost every dusk. In September 2018, the rainy season was in full flow. After one particularly bad thunderstorm, I found a fledgling, a bronze-winged mannequin finch, barely a month old on the ground. He was abandoned by his flock, his nest blown from the mango tree. His eyes were tightly shut and he was shuddering, too young to survive alone. He was the size of my little finger, with feathers the colour of rich tea biscuits, inky eyes and a small bill like a pencil lead. I placed him in a cardboard box with tea towels, mimicking a nest, and stayed up all night, researching how to care for him. I spoke to an expert, who said it would take 12 weeks to prepare him for the wild. The next day, he woke with his mouth open and a shrill hunger call. I fed him termites and, instinctively, chirped at him. He chirped back and clambered into my hand, digging in his beak and head, then fell asleep in my palm. As far as he was concerned, I was his mother. For the next 84 days, the fledgling lived on me. We became inseparable. He would fly alongside me, or cling to me as I went from room to room in the house, while we walked the grasslands, or when I drove. He'd rest in my hand. As he learned to fly, he'd make short flights from my hand, to my shoulder, to my head, then abseil down my waist-length hair to rest again. He investigated my clothes, belt and shoelaces. I ate and went to the toilet one-handed as he took daily naps in my cupped palm. At dusk, I would stroke and chirp to him until his eyes drooped and his head lolled to one side. Then I'd lower him into his tea towel nest and leave him until dawn. Each day, he made little nests in my hair, on the groove of my collarbone, which filled me with awe. He'd tuck himself under a curtain of hair and gather individual strands with his beak, sculpting them into a round of woven locks resembling a small nest, then settling inside. He would allow it to unravel when he was done and start again the next day. I learned his different calls. He purred when he was content, sounded a high-pitched alarm when he was afraid. I'd forage for his food and clean up his litter, which was exhausting. I never named him because 
he didn't belong to me. I had to remind myself that he needed to return to the wild. Our bond was so strong that it became immeasurable. We both needed each other. In return for putting his life back on course, he was replotting mine by giving me purpose and new perspective. His flock returned to the grasslands and we'd walk closer each day, so he could observe and interact with them. Almost three months later, he looked resplendent in his adult plumage. He was stronger, more confident, and flying farther from me for longer. At home, my husband had built him an aviary of wood and mesh to help wean him off me. It was time for him to go. Before I flew back to England for Christmas, we decided Robin should let him fly while I was gone. Robin took him out to the flock three times. On the fourth day, the little bird flew away with them. When I returned in January, I'd watch out for him when the finches flew past. Every now and then, one would hang back on a branch and stare at me. I still cry when I think of him. Raising him taught me how to live in the present and changed me forever. Last year, when we returned to Oxfordshire, I joined local conservation efforts and wrote our story into a book, Fledgling. That, along with the lesson that any tiny animal can make a difference, will be his legacy. That was Experience. I let a baby bird nest in my hair for 84 days by Hannah Bourne Taylor. Read by Serena Mantegi. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Jason Dunn and Serena Mantegi and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.